Hi, welcome to Theology Gals, a podcast that is for women, by women, and I'm Colleen Sharp, and I have my co-host, Ashley Glassick. Um, We are a podcast on the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network, so be sure to go to their website, BibleThumpingWingnut.com. We will be um, posting things on our blog there, and you can download an app where you can keep up with our podcasts and our blogs. Um, how are you doing, Ashley? You know, I'm doing pretty well. I did want to mention our awesome intro music because I don't think we've yes. quite introduced we our mm-hmm. our band here. So, um, the band you just heard is a band called Castle Pines, and I am so excited that they decided to be a part of um, our podcast because they are actually a homegrown band from Corona, California, which is the same town that Colleen and I are from. So um, if you are interested in checking out more from Castle Pines, uh, they're on Spotify, SoundCloud. Um, They have a Facebook page. um, So it's just the word Castle Pines. Um, We love them and we're super excited that uh, we get to use the music. I love love the bumper music so much. I love it. Yeah. Um, I sent Ashley a message when I was doing it and said, I love it. I love it. I love it. So yeah. um, we're, we're so excited. We have something unique and um, something right from our hometown. Yeah. And we have a great podcast um, planned for today where we'll be talking about Calvinism, but we thought we'd just talk a little bit about what's been going on. Um, Ashley, are you reading anything special right now? Am I reading anything? You know, I have, I have been reading Rosaria Butterfield's uh, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Have you read that? Yeah, I started reading it the, around the same time as you, but we didn't plan that way. So I'm reading it right <laughs> now also. Yeah, I'm only like three chapters in, but I'm loving it. Uh-huh. I, think she's, I think she's a really great writer and very engaging and has a lot yeah. of good things to say. Yeah, I've made a few things with quotes from her because I've just, I've just really, really been enjoying it. She has a lot of really good things to say, you know, even about culture and Christianity yeah. and, and topics that um, we will probably be talking about at some point. Um, yeah, I know this week we had um, the If Gather. I think the If Gathering – was just this last weekend and Mm -hmm. for those who don't know it's a I I didn't even know what it was until a few months ago but it is a um, conference for women I guess it's pretty popular it's got some pretty big names um, associated with it but not women that we would recommend and so I think there was there was a few times where people were asking in our Facebook group, if you're not in there, um, you can, women, any woman can join. Um, and it's called Theology Gals, Ladies Theology Discussion and Encouragement. But, and people were asking, what do you guys think about it? And so it was because of those posts that I kind of looked into who the speakers are and what sort of things that they're promoting. Yeah. And I heard that with these um, if gatherings, they actually don't post the speaker list before the actual. Oh, event. really? Yeah. Okay. So if you were like, Hey, I want to go to this thing, but I want to check to see who's speaking first. I I, okay. I might be mistaken, but I'm pretty sure I've seen that people mention that on multiple occasions that 
Okay, so maybe it was just past speakers. They were. I thought somebody. I thought someone said something like Jen Hatmaker's been involved before, but they didn't have her involved. Right. This but time. like, I'm pretty sure that in the days and months leading up to it, no one mm-hmm. knows. No one knows exactly who's going to be speaking at. Okay. That's what. Yeah, I mean, I'm not but. sure. I'm not sure I would like that because I kind of yeah. like to know. I don't if, think if I'm ever going to. Been- yeah, if I was going to a conference, I would like to know well who's going to be talking. At yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think I've been to a women's conference before in my recollection. Um, I don't recall um, going to a women's conference before. Not that I would be opposed to, you know, going to one. Um, but uh, I feel like maybe there was a woman speaker at like a Ligonier conference we went to or something. Not preacher, obviously, but. Um, that spoke, I know, like Elizabeth Elliott would speak at Ligonier Conference or Johnny Erickson yeah. Totten, you know, those sorts of things. But, Great. Um, anything going ex- exciting with you, Ashley, or um, this week? I had a really great weekend. Um, I got to go see one of one of my friends get married up in Northern California. Oh, and it was so cool. It was just such a good wedding, and... You can just see how much these two love the Lord and both of their churches were there. They're two kids. I mean, not kids, they're grownups, but <laughs> that mm-hmm. met and they're in the same presbytery. So it's just kind of cool seeing these two Presbyterian churches kind of come together for this wedding. Um, but it was lots of fun. And Northern California is beautiful. It's like right by Yosemite kind of area. Oh, yeah, that's it. That's a beautiful area. We yeah. we drove from Southern California last summer in our motorhome. Mm-hmm. We love our little cross-country motorhome trips. We drove from Southern California all the way up the coast, and we even went to Yosemite, which that area is just just very nice. Yeah, it was it was beautiful. And then we on Sunday we got to come down the coast a bit and go to our old church in Monterey, um, California, oh, and we got to hang out great. in Monterey for a little bit. And yeah, we used to live in Monterey and we went to um, a church there and it was, it was just really great to see, you know, some of our old friends yeah. and mm-hmm. um, it's kind of interesting, you know, you only go to a church for a short while, but then you leave and you come back and you're like, oh, I miss these people so much, even though it was just a short while we were there. But if you're ever in Monterey, California, there's a great church called Covenant Presbyterian. Go check it out. That that's great. That means it was probably a really great church. We had a church we attended for about um, a year when we were living outside Chicago before we moved here, and we just lo- we just loved it. We we're only there for a year, but you know we yeah. love to go back and visit um, whenever mm-hmm. we're able. That's an OPC also down yeah. in Wheaton, Illinois, okay. um, Bethel OPC, and we just oh we just really enjoyed that church. It's been um almost 20 years since we left. So it's been quite a while. Well, Mm -hmm. today we're going to talk about Calvinism. And I know for some of you, you're going to say, okay, I already know all about Calvinism. I don't really need to talk about Calvinism. But we also have a lot of women who've been asking questions. And I think it's a great topic, whether you've been a Calvinist for 20 years or five years, or you're just listening in because you're curious about what Calvinism is. And um, so I think we're going to talk a little bit first about what it is 
and then um, kind of talk about our journeys into that understanding and, you know, kind of the history and some of the misunderstandings that go along with it. Um, Calvinism is probably an unfortunate name because people think, oh, if you're, you're a Calvinist, that must mean that you just agree with John Calvin on everything. And, and that's not the case because I think that Calvinism on its own has really just come to refer to what's called the five points of Calvinism. It doesn't necessarily refer to all of Reformed theology, but it refers to um, the soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation. That's what soteriology is. Um, and so I think the easiest way to go through them and kind of talk about each one, why we believe them, what, um, where we see this in scripture, and just kind of talk about um, a little bit is just to go through. They're also known as tulip, and um, I don't love some of the descriptions that tulip has insisted on so that it fits, um, but it is, a, it is a great little kind of memory tool to remember all five points. So what do you think, Ashley? Maybe just start with the T and move down? Yeah, I mean, before we start, I would like to say that, you know, all, all five really go together. You know, we, you can't just talk about the T or the P or, right. you know, you really have to, they all fit together really nicely. So, yeah, I mean, I think T is a good, good place to start. Yeah, and, and T is total depravity. And real quick, and then we'll talk about it for a little bit, but total depravity, bondage to sin in Adam. And um, we're not, it doesn't mean that we're as bad as we can possibly be, but that original sin has thoroughly corrupted every part of us. So it doesn't mean, when we say total depravity, it doesn't mean that you are a serial killer, but you are, every part of you is indeed um, stained with the sin of Adam. Um, and I think of, well, I'll, one of one of the verses I think of regarding total depravity is in Ephesians 2, where it says that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, then it goes on to say that he made us alive in Christ, which we'll get to with the other points, because this really does go together. But Ashley, what what state does our total depravity leave us in that makes well, us it, so helpless? Yeah, I think that's why we have to start. If we're going to talk about salvation, we have to start at total depravity because total the doctor total depravity shows us that there's nothing I can do to one I can't fulfill the law and um, make it into heaven on my on my own good works, but also I can't. Well, I guess we'll get into. <laughs> choosing God in a second. But mm-hmm. I think mainly total depravity is I I cannot fulfill the law. Like I'm unable to on my own. And I think um, some people really wrestle with total depravity, but I think when you look at the world around us, mm-hmm. I don't have a hard time seeing that we're depraved. Like I... Right. It makes sense that, you know, our our actions are, all of our actions are tainted by sin. Um, when you just look at the state of things in the world, that sounds kind right. of depressing. But, you know, it's a it's a reality where we're in sin, we're in Adam. 
Yeah. Well, um, I, I heard somebody say once, and maybe it was someone famous, but they said, if you don't believe in total depravity, have children. Um, <laughs> it is, it's so amazing. You have kids and you protect them from anything negative, you know, and they're all of a sudden, you know, just a little over one years old and you never taught them to be selfish and somehow they figured it out. <laughs> they yeah. figured out how to be selfish. They figured out how to, you know, and they can even be deceptive at young ages. And, you know, I, I didn't have to teach my kids to lie or to cheat or to be disrespectful or anything like that. They, it all came naturally to them. And, um, I know some people will talk about total inability, but because of our total depravity, we cannot, we are helpless in that state. We cannot on our own work in any way towards our salvation, even mustering up saving faith. So that's another thing that total depravity. Yeah, which, I mean, that kind of leads us into, would you say that kind of leads us into you, unconditional yeah, and why don't you talk about why don't you talk about you starting out? Because I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, so we started total depravity. Total depravity says, you know, we can't we can't obey the law, and then we get into unconditional election. I'm going to read actually this nice little definition that we have here. Okay, um, out of His lavish grace, the Father chose out of the fallen race a people from every race to be redeemed through His Son. And united to his son by his spirit. This determination was made in eternity apart from anything foreseen in the believer. So here we're seeing that God actually chose us. My pastor says a lot in eternity past. That's just the phrase I always hear. You know, in eternity past, God chose us um, to be redeemed to him. Um, Colleen, question for you. Yeah. What What do you think about that unconditional election? Like, why Why the yeah, adjective? Yeah, this, this plays into, you know, a little bit of my story I think I brought up before in, we, in this doing, it was election. This is kind of where it all started for me. I was in high school, and my amazing friend who, that I went to high school with who ended up even going to Westminster Seminary, and um, he's a pastor now, he wanted to do this study in the summer. I think it was between 11th and 12th grade. Wanted to do a study of Ephesians. And we got to election. And, you know, I just thought, because Ephesians 1 says that we are chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love. He predestined us. And it goes on to say that he, what he predestined us for, which is salvation and adoption. And I just thought it can't possibly mean that. You know, that was where a lot of people hear about it and they just say, no way. There's no way God chooses some people and doesn't choose others. So I really did think to myself, there has to be a better explanation. And it was not long till I was um, in the car and heard a sermon from a Calvary Chapel pastor who said, the way it worked is God looked through time. He looked to see who would choose him and who wouldn't. And that's who he chose. And not just at that moment, my probably 17-year-old understanding uh, that made sense to me okay yeah then then that's why but it's the unconditional that is so so important here was because of actually reading through the old testament that i first started wondering were we really chosen because of something he saw in in 
the future or was it an unconditional choosing? Yeah. And I think it's, Is that, go, go ahead. Oh, no, I, you know, I think, Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2 for all of these um, is, is so great because it even, it shows, it shows the election, but it also shows the fact that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So had Christ not elected us, regenerated us, and done all of those things, um, we, you know, no one would be saved. Ashley, what are some verses on election that are things that you think of? Um. I always go to Ephesians 1. That's my, just because I think the language in Ephesians 1 is really clear. But as we're talking about it, I was also thinking, I think it's John 6, where Jesus is actually talking about, I, those who the Father gave to me. Do you know what, you know what verse I'm talking about? In John 6. Sorry about that. My microphone oh. turned off. Um, yeah, in um, yeah, I do know exactly which verse you're referring to. Okay, I'm looking it up right now because I definitely don't have that memory. All right. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I didn't have that one in front of me. But yes, for the yes. Uh, do you want me to find that one, Ashley? Yeah. I can look that up while you're talking. Yeah. So. I, so I always think of Ephesians 1 because I, I think the language is really clear. You know, he predestined you, you know, he, um, and even in Ephesians 2, when it says like the, but God statement, you know, it's, it's, it's just showing that like, like you, you couldn't have chosen, you know, like we already talked about total depravity. You couldn't have chosen. So it, to me, not only is it clear in scripture, to me, when you, when you think of it in light of God's sovereignty, um, it actually, it makes sense. You know, it, I, I guess, um, some people really, really wrestle with this and I don't want to minimize that, you know, but, um, to me, it just seems very clear. Like you, you, even if you were like, I don't want to believe this, like you said when you were younger, I don't want to believe this. I just right. feel like when you're reading the New Testament, it, you just see it on it. Yeah. Everywhere. Yeah, because I had to read through the entirety of the Old Testament when I started to see it was actually God's sovereignty mm-hmm. that convinced me of it. And just for those who are maybe even new to this and don't even know what sovereignty means, I mean, that has to do with this overall, everything is. A, under his care, under his control. Yeah. Um, you know, nothing is outside of, of his. Um, I found the verse you mentioned, which... Um, Good. You're quicker than me. John six thirty seven. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. And that actually fits some of the other points of Calvinism, too. Right. Um, yeah. Let's move on. This is the one that I think is hard for a lot of people. And that yeah, is the L. When people say they're four-point Calvinists, usually mm-hmm. they're referring to, I believe in the T, the U, the I, and the P, but I don't believe in the L. Right? Right. And, and the L in TULIP is limited atonement. 
Um, but that I like kind of definite atonement better or particular redemption. Okay. Ashley, I think you had mentioned what it, mentioned something that what it was that kind of convinced you about of, limited atonement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Gosh, I I can't remember exactly. Well, you know what? Let's define it first. What? Yeah. What that's do you a, mean? Yeah, exactly. So basically Christ's death is sufficient for the whole world, but it only secured the redemption of the elect. So when Jesus died on the cross, did he die on the cross? Did he take the sins of the entire world on him or just the elect? Right. Because we read John 3.16 and it says, for God so loved the world. And so people are like, you see, like he loved the world, like he sent his only son to save the world. And that means everyone. So I, I understand why people would think that means everyone, but I think what the story I remember telling you that really drove it home for me was thinking about how we know that God is a just God. And we know that when he sent his son to die on the cross, that was a just thing for him to do. And if he sent his son to die for the sins of the entire world. Yet we know the entire world will not be saved. Like, you know, not everyone will be saved. That would mean that Jesus died for sins of people that are actually going to hell. And that would make God not just. Right. So I, when someone said that to me, I, I was like, well, God's just like, God can't, he can't not be just. And so he, when he sent his son to die for the sins of his elect, he sent him to die for the exact, you know, like it had to be the exact just right um, punishment um, for our sins. Not, not for sins that people, you know, will never, never right. um, be saved. So. It has to do with really even, and we won't get into it real deep here, but in that is one's doctrine of the atonement. What exactly happened with Christ on the cross? And and so we believe, you know, scripture, when scripture is talking about him dying on our place, him taking on the sins of the elect, um, it really points to the fact that Christ paid for the sins of those that that he chose, but that something very specific happened on the cross that our sins were paid for, that when it said it is finished, it was finished. And it wasn't, um, if a four point Calvinist or an Arminian believes in the possibility of something. So Christ took every person ever in the history of the world's sins on him so that people could have the possibility of that. But, but we believe that scripture is clear that it accomplished something for the elect. Um, would, would you think Romans 9 would apply to L? Like when we're talking about vessels Yeah, of which verse are you thinking of? Looking at verse 22. Oh. So it says, what if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? Um, what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? So there's like objects of mercy and objects of objects of wrath. And so the objects of mercy are are the elect. Um, 
And I've actually, I've heard of a, a church here in the, well, in Northern California, I'm in Southern California, that the church was doing a study on Romans and the pastors preaching through Romans. And it was this pastor's first time preaching through Romans. He gets to Romans 9 and all of a sudden is like, oh my gosh, like I, <laughs> I like it hit him for the first time, you know, this truth yes. about election. And, and he then goes on Sunday to start preaching through Romans 9 and, you know, with his whole church, they all kind of make this shift over, you know, to Calvinism. And eventually, I've heard stories like that before. Yeah. Yes. And eventually they joined our, our denomination, the, the OPC. Oh, really? So yeah, I, I love that story. I'm just, they were like, wow, we, we didn't, even the pastor was like, I, I hadn't thought through this before. So. Wow. That's, and you know, it's, in my in my story of coming to understanding these things, it was just reading the Bible. I and I don't I don't think I would have been able to articulate all five points, but I had a basic understanding of our sinfulness and um, that God had chosen us. But it was just from read, having to read straight through the Bible. My first year of Bible college, I had mm-hmm. to at spring break, I went and visited my grandparents. My grandfather had been a pastor and I just said, do you have a theology book? I didn't even know what I was looking for. And um, uh, maybe I'll tell you guys sometime what theology book, some of you probably won't be familiar with it, but some of you would or your husbands would, but I found the section on the five points of Calvinism and I was so excited because it was everything I believed. So um, the next one is, um, I, which is irresistible grace. I, that's another one that I'm not, uh, I don't like limited atonement so great. It's not really the original term anyways. And mm-hmm. I, I'm not real fond of irresistible grace. Um, kind of like effectual calling more, but they both mean the same thing. So what is irresistible grace? Could you um, um, explain that? Like why, why do you prefer effectual calling to irresistible grace? Probably because I listen to Michael Horton too much. No. Um, he he talks about that. Irresist- I, I don't know. It's I think it's probably just um, limited atonement, definitely. I don't like it because Christ's atonement isn't limited. But I do think it's effectual in particular. Um, irresistible grace. I think of I think of it more as calling than, you know, God puts out some grace and makes it so you can't resist it. I think of it more, I think, and I think scripture portrays it more of a calling. So Mm -hmm. effectual calling that he calls us and his calling of us to salvation and regeneration is effectual. Yeah. Um, So, but what is, you know, let's define it for our listeners, for those who aren't familiar with what effectual calling is and what, do you want to read the description? And by the way, these descriptions are from, Michael Horton's book for Calvinism. I feel like we're going to end up quoting Michael Horton quite a bit on on this podcast. Um, Not a bad thing. Um, Okay. So irresistible grace or effectual grace is the Holy Spirit unites sinners to Christ through the gospel and faith is the effect, not the cause of the new birth. And, um, you know, I've heard it explained like, if God is going to call you to himself, like in a sense, it is irresistible, right? Like, 
Like yes. I, I understand you're saying you don't like the the term necessarily, but if God is going to call you to Himself, He is going to call you to Himself. Like there's nothing right. That, and like, I, I think effectual is a good word too because it's yeah. it, His calling of you will be effectual. This is not, you know, just like parents. I call my kids and only two of them come. Right. Which, when, and I think Ephesians two again. Such a great passage. If you want, if you want to study this, Ephesians one and two are so great. In the passage that I talked about before, that um, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and He made us alive in Christ. And so we did nothing. He He did all of it. Yeah. Um, and, and then it goes. And then it says, "By grace, you are saved through faith." And and one thing. I mean, this really does have to do with what we call the Ordo Salutis or the order of salvation, too, that um, we are actually regenerated and then have faith. Um, But he is the one who makes us alive with Christ. It is not, we don't hear the calling and run and then do something. He has already done it at that point. Yeah, I mean, we've already kind of, uh, shown with unconditional election. You were chosen before the foundation of the world. You didn't choose God. You know, right. God chose you, but I think with irresistible grace, we see that as well, where right. um, you, you're not, this isn't something, this isn't an offer you can refuse. Like, And it, and it goes back to God's sovereignty, sovereignty. Like if you really believe God is sovereign, you have to believe that if he if he's calling you, you you're right. gonna go, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Yep, and because it's a work of him, both our justification and our sanctification. I always say we can't help it, you know. Yeah. We can't we can't reject that. We can't yeah. help it. We can't help but believe when he has done that work inside of us. Yeah. I I think of it sometimes as like a mom with their toddler where like their toddler's trying to go in one direction and God kind of, or not God, the mom like grabs the toddler by the scruff of their, or by their, you know, shirt collar and kind of picks them up and moves them the other, like you're not going to go that way, you know? And I definitely saw that in my own life where I wasn't necessarily looking for God. I wasn't you know, I wasn't trying to like become a Christian, but like, I mean, God made made me see my sin and just, you know, and I was saved. It like it, it wasn't. I wasn't seeking it. You know, it it just kind of came, and I definitely see you know God's sovereignty in that. Yeah, I think I've. I mean, I've heard people say um, he dragged me kicking and screaming. You know. <laughs> Um, and but it doesn't stay that way, and I think that's not always a helpful picture because we we will desire him because of his work inside of us. We're not yeah. saying, "Oh, I just don't want to believe," but now right. I have right. to. Yeah, we. Yeah, that's it, a good and it has a lot to do. I I have a resource sheet for this week. Um, you can email us at theologygals at gmail dot com or connect with us on social media. But on there, I've got links to some books. And one that I put on there um, was The Sovereignty of God by A.W. Pink, because that's a great book on understanding the human will. Um, Mm Because I think a lot of people have questions about that. So do you not have any freedom and, you know, things like that, um, that it answers. 
some of those things. But the last one, um, Ashley, do you want to read the last one? Sure. Then we can kind of talk about them as a whole. All right. So we are to P, uh, perseverance of the saints. Um, all of those chosen, redeemed, and regenerated will be given the gift of persevering faith so that not one will be lost. So I've, you know, um, I've had girls say to me before, I just don't feel like I can do it. Like I might lose my salvation. But perseverance of the saints is not actually even about our perseverance, but God is the one. He is the one who holds on to us. He is the one who does not let us go. And that's where the comfort is. Not in that we will persevere on our own, but that he holds on to us, that he holds on to us till the end, that he makes sure that, um, that we stay with him and continue yeah, I, to walk in him. And I hear some people say things like, well, like a lot of people want to say, yeah, only God saves. But then once you're saved, you have to do these works in order right. to persevere. And that's not what this is. We're, we're, we're saying right. no, God saves and God um, will, um, I'm, I'm looking at Philippians one, six here. <clears throat> it says being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I've always found that verse to be immensely yeah. comforting, you know? Um, yeah. He will he, not let us go. Yeah. Yeah. It's the um, comfort is not that he will help us win the, win the race, but that he's already won the race for us. And yeah. that he is carrying us through it. <laughs> that yeah. it is him who is working in us. I mean, even you were talking about the works thing. And, and that's something that we will um, do an episode at some point. And sometimes um, people confuse justification and sanctification. And we believe very strongly in progressive sanctification. But sometimes people confuse justification and sanctification because our justification is by faith alone. Our works do not contribute, but our sanctification, um, which is also a work that he is doing in us, does result in obedience. But the obedience does not contribute to our salvation, yeah. to our justification, I should say. Mm-hmm. And it's also comforting to know, um, you know, saying he will bring this to completion. Uh it's not as if you could have this giant fall from grace and that's it. God's like, all right, you know, I've given you enough chances here. Um, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's not like you, you, I just, I hear people talk about this and just, you can see their anxiety of, well, you know, <laughs> I'm just hoping God can forgive me for this, you know, and right. and that's they struggle with assurance. Very, they struggle with assurance, and it's like no, like nothing can snatch you from a father's hands, like right. nothing. Um, he yeah. he has saved you, he's regenerated you, and he will sanctify you and glorify you, and that's he's sovereign over that. There's nothing you can do to to lose that. Right. And, you know, that's a, and I love a, one of my favorite quotes from Scott Clark on his, he has a, on his um, website, title blog, I can put it on the sheet, but he has a, a um, piece on assurance. And he says that our assurance can strengthen 
I mean, our good works can strengthen our assurance, but they are not the basis for it. Christ is the basis of our assurance. So we have to be careful not to look too much to our sanctification for our justification. Um, I mean, yes, our our good works will flow out of that, but we need to. I I know people who grew up in legalistic churches, and they often struggle with this. But you know, I would obey better if I was really a Christian. You know, even though they're fighting and repentant, and um, they've been under that sort of teaching. And I think we're going to end up doing a whole episode on assurance at one point here. So. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so I'll let I'll let this point too much on our Calvinism right. episode. But um, so, um, all of this, all of this together, the emphasis really in Calvinism is the sovereignty and the glory of God, and also His grace. The fact that He would choose any is. Um, immense grace but also this is all for his glory his justice for his glory election is for his glory the salvation that he's given us it is all for his glory alone yeah what things do you i mean what things do you think um describes or summarizes the five points of calvinism ashley oh gosh I think you just did such a good job that I don't even want to try to, (laughs) I mean, it's God's sovereignty and salvation, right? Yeah. I I was reading something by Michael Horton. Oh, there I go again. Um, But, you know, he was saying that God is not a supporting actor in our story. (laughs) You know, we are part of his story of redemption, but I think, I think so often in today's, modern evangelicalism especially is this very me-centered faith the emphasis is me and what god is doing in me and that is a wonderful thing although i think in today we see a lot of emphasis on experience at the sacrifice of truth but um this really is a very glory of god centered theology and i'm going to give just a little history on it and we want to talk about some misunderstandings in calvinism but Calvinism was not new to John Calvin. You know, you can find aspects of it in Augustine, you know, who's the early church father. And there was, you can actually find aspects of his theology in Luther and other reformers who came before him. So even at the time of the Reformation, it wasn't, you know, new to Calvin. It goes back to Paul, actually, in the Bible. Um, and um, what, but what Calvin did is organize this beautiful theology well in what's known as his Institutes of the Christian Religion. And I think because Calvin had so, what I've read is that because extensive writing and that it was passed around so much that it kind of became associated with him. Although, well, Michael Horton says in the book that I mentioned that the term Calvinist was originally came out of Lutheran polemics. It wasn't, didn't mean what it has come to me now. And I know that Calvin himself did not want a theology named after him. Um, but, and then, so basically, the re- but it was not Calvin who put together the five points into five points, like we know him, and he didn't come up with the tulip either. But um, one thing, what so what happened is, is after the death of Calvin, there was a man named... J- Jake, 
well, they do, I'll just say the English version. <laughs> Jacob Arminius, okay? So, and you guys probably have heard of Arminianism, which is, you know, the opposing theology, to, uh, a soteriology as Calvinism. And so, but Arminius actually studied under Theodore Beza, who was somebody who came after Calvin teaching the same things as Calvin. And, but... Jacob Arminius did not like this, and he, and I believe some of his um, supporters, drafted a document known as the the Remonstrance, and it was a detailed refutation of the sovereignty of God in salvation, which, and it elevated the free will of man. Well, they had these five points in there, and then in response to that came the canons of Dort. And some of our churches, um, those in the United Reformed Church and other Dutch Reformed churches who hold to the three forms of unity, ha- still have the Canons of Dort in their confessions. But the Canons of Dort kind of organized the, into these points in response to these Arminian points. So that's kind of the history. But you know, the term Calvinism, and but Calvinism does not mean a follower of Calvin because I know so many Calvinists or who believe. You know, doctrines of grace is probably a better name for it. Who, you know, agree with Calvin on soteriology, but disagree with him on just about everything else. They disagree with him on ecclesiology and the sacraments and and things like that. But what are other mis what are what are some other misunderstandings or misconceptions about Calvinism? Well, I think the first that I can think of is one you just touched on, which is I've heard someone say, "Well." I don't follow Calvin. I follow Jesus. Right. And it's like, well, we're not following Calvin. We just think he very succinctly explained something that's true in scripture. Like we're, we're not holding Calvin to some super high pedestal. We just think he explained these things really well. So that's the first one I think of is, you know, that we're, we're following someone out side of Christ. I don't know. Um, I think that, I think that comment's a little weird. I don't even know if they totally believe that when they say that. Um, another, another one when, so if you talk about Calvinism, um, well, people will think, oh, well, you must not evangelize because God's already, God's already chosen. So like, you know, he's sovereign, right? So like, why would you evangelize? And I, I think that's, a gross misunderstanding of God's sovereignty. And it's not, I mean, it's possible that there's some Calvinists out there that, you know, lean right. that way. There, but I, hyper Calvinists. There is a version of hyper Calvinists. Yeah. That don't believe in it. Yeah. And hyper Calvinists also don't think that, like they think you have to believe in Calvinism to be saved. Um, it, or you know, I think there's neo? different definitions and there okay. is, there is the neo-gnostic Calvinist and the neo-gnostic yeah. Calvinist not believe not only do you have to embrace the five points to be saved, but you have to believe that somebody has to embrace the five points to be saved. So since I don't think Calvinism is necessary for salvation, even though I'm a Calvinist, they don't consider I'm saved. <laughs> wow. That's a pretty, um, big statement. So they would yeah. put... Calvinism on the same level as like the Trinity and wow, um, you know the so, different foundational aspects of the Christian faith. We would definitely reject that. 
Like yes. we we do we would never say someone who rejects Calvinism cannot be saved. We would never say that. And right. we you know, we like my pastor always says we love our Armenian brothers and sisters. They just they think differently on this. Uh-huh. We disagree with them, you know, but right. we would never say they're not saved. That's right. That's definitely error. Um but let's and talk we, about uh what I was gonna say about evangelism real evangelism. quick. Evangelism, yeah. Let's we, talk about that. You know, we we believe that God in his sovereignty uses means to bring the gospel to his people. We are told in scripture to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Calvinism is not contrary to that. And I think that's a misunderstanding. Um I've been told by people that they, I have a couple of friends who've told me that they were told by pastors that Calvinists don't evangelize and Calvinists don't believe in obedience. And, you know, I'm like, where did they get this? Because this is not, this is not true. We have missionaries in our churches and um, we absolutely believe in preaching the gospel. We believe that that's what the Lord uses to and obedience, right, to bring <laughs> people to himself. Yeah. So that's. That's a mischaracterization of yes. what it means to be Calvinism. And, uh, you know, I even see people, I, I heard um, Les Lanfear of the Reformed Pub talk about this, where he's making that documentary called Calvinist. And um, he would he was asking people at this um, conference he was at, hey, are you a Calvinist? And they're like, no, but I'm Reformed. Like, he he was like realizing that people are afraid to use the term Calvinism Mm -hmm. because they think it carries with it this baggage, Um, which I, I actually have no problem using the term. I think it, I think it helps clarify, Mm -hmm. you know, if you say, Oh, that church is Calvinistic. It's you're saying, Oh, they believe in the the doctrines of grace. That's good to know. You know, like I, I don't know. I don't think we should be afraid to use terminology because it, you know, it clarifies things. Right. It, well, and I think it me it does say this is what I believe about soteriology. Right. Um, and then the other one that I mentioned earlier is Calvinists don't believe in obedience. Okay. So because we believe that our obedience does not purchase our salvation, does not mean that we do not believe in obedience. We believe strongly in progressive sanctification it is in our confessions it's in the westminster the westminster standards it's in the three forms of unity um like the heidelberg catechism for instance is set up into guilt grace and gratitude Hmm. you know if if somebody on if my husband just loved me unconditionally and i treated him horribly and yet he um continued to be gracious to me it actually makes me want to be kind and obedient to him, you know, in that same way, why, why would I want to sin against the very one who sent his son to pay for my salvation? I continue to, to suffer. I mean, to struggle with sin, but because he is working in me, I, we do grow in obedience when we are in Christ. We, um, our good works are an outpouring of that. Right. Um, so what do you think? Have you run into that at all where people now I do think sometimes with my Wesleyan friends who are teetotalers, they think that we're horrible sinners because we drink alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> well, OK, I would like to say something about that. 
Um, okay. I do think because there's been this resurgence of Calvinism in the last, what, like 15 years or? Yeah, 15 20 years. 10. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there has been this these things associated with that, which is, you know, alcohol and and, you know, we, of course, believe that it's okay to drink alcohol. Yeah, we believe in Christian liberty. Christian liberty. That we don't make new laws on top of what God has already commanded us. Right. So we wouldn't, we wouldn't say, oh, you can't, you can't drink alcohol. But with that being said, I do think the community, you know, that the Reformed community needs to be careful, you know, that that doesn't become. Don't abuse. Don't abuse, abuse liberties. Right. So. Because drinking itself is not a sin, but drunkenness is. Yeah. You know, I've, I know people in the Reformed community who have struggled with alcoholism. And so, you know, who've come to me, I've had somebody come to me and say, it's just so hard for me to confess this in this community. Yeah, actually, I don't know. If, I have a funny story about this. My, my, it, my grandparents were teetotalers. And they grew up during Prohibition. So, you know, I did understand to some degree. And somehow I told them one day, now I never drank alcohol. This is like 20 years ago. And I did not drink alcohol at the time. But I just, all I said was, I don't think it's wrong to drink alcohol. But my grandma called my aunt and said, Colleen thinks it's okay to get drunk. (laughs) I I called grandma, grandma, I do. I think it is wrong to get drunk. (laughs) So, and, but you know, one thing that didn't make me realize is I don't think that my non-drinking teetotaling friends completely understand drinking. Like they might think one glass of wine results in drunkenness, you know? So, and I think my grandparents never having drunk. And so I, I have friends who are teetotalers and I am sensitive. Yeah. Just because you can does not mean you have to when it comes to, um, drinking alcohol. It is, it is kind of interesting that with Calvinism, the community that, you know, drinking alcohol and beards and cigars (laughs) has been like, you know, like, it's just kind of funny to me, but like, I don't know why. You know, I, you know, I, I don't know what caused that. I mean, I know they put different reformed people like Spurgeon and Calvin and see they have beards and stuff like that. And that's fine. I don't, you know, that yeah. they want to emphasize manliness and that sort of thing. I don't know um, the um, I, obsession is probably an unfair word, but I'll, I'm not sure what other word to use, but obsession with alcohol in some circles. Um, I don't know where that comes from. I've been in Presbyterian churches almost 23 years. We've always drank, but we never talked about it a lot. Mm-hmm. So when we get together, you want some wine, you want a beer, sure. But it's never been like a thing which defined us. But it yeah. seems like I wonder, I think a lot of people from this movement came out of legalism. Yeah, and so I think I it's think of embracing Christian liberties that they didn't understand existed before. Right. Which I think is great in a sense, because legalism is no good either. Right. Legalism. Elise Fitzpatrick says legalism leads to rebellion or self-righteousness. And I actually, I love that quote because I think that is exactly what it leads to. I've had my friends from legalistic circles leave the church in the greatest rebellion I've ever seen. 
And then I have some who are, you know, self-righteous because they've been able to obey so well. And well, I think we can all naturally have a tendency towards self-righteousness, you know, in that, but um, so Ashley, I think you had a story that you wanted to tell. Okay. So I do have a funny story about predestination. Well, I don't know how funny it'll be to you, but so when my husband and I started dating, well, it's, he's so funny because he didn't even call it a date. He was like, do you want to go hang out with me? And go go to dinner. That's my, that was my husband too. Yeah, 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 so smooth. And I was like, yeah, of course, you know. Um, and so I think it was the second time we kind of went out. We drove out to LA. We're in Southern California, so we drove out to LA, and you know, we're just getting to know each other. We're talking a lot, just trying to you know kind of figure out, okay, are we going to really date here or no? And so it's like literally the second time I've hung out with him. We're driving. And he gets kind of quiet and he's like, so what do you think about predestination? And, you know, at the time I was still learning, you know, a lot about, you know, theology and stuff. And I was like, oh, yeah, like I, yeah, I think I agree with that. You know, I don't know totally, but I just thought it was so funny because he was like, here we are on our second date. and He's trying to make sure I'm not like... (laughs) Sounds like he's a little nervous about it, too. What if she says no? She's a complete Arminian. Yeah, what if she's not a Calvinist or, you know? So I I was teasing him about that. I asked him the other day, I was like, do you remember that? And he's like, I never said that. And I was like, you totally did. (laughs) Our second date, you're asking me about predestination, so... Yeah, it my husband and I, we we talked about it the night we met. Um, he was he had was really kind of on the journey towards being completely reformed. And my husband grew up Lutheran, and then ended up at a mega church in Chicago area, Willow Creek, real big church. He ended up there, and then he ended up at the church of another well known pastor before he was very well known. But when he was at Willow Creek, R.C. Sproul came and spoke. And my husband just loved him. So he went to the table and got all of the different resources he could. So he was he had become a Calvinist and was further in Reformed theology when we met. But we start we talked about it the night that we met too. Talked about predestination. Wow. Hey. Foundations for a good a good marriage, right there. That's like that's right. You, I mean, I I would say in dating, you don't want to you don't want to date someone completely on the other side of the theological spectrum. But yeah, it. I think it it can. Well, I think we know it can cause some issues. My husband and I um, have come to some different things at different times. I um, came to embrace pedo baptism. I think I want to say two or three years before he did. Although I think my husband tends to be the most thorough person. If he studies an <laughs> issue, he is going yeah. to everything he can find on it and talk to every person he can about it. Right. And he was, and uh, that's a good quality. Yeah. He, he just, he really studied it. It really kind of came together for me before that, um, that I'm, I'm thankful. I'm thankful for that. So um, I have a question, and not to interrupt you, but yes, no, I'm done. I figure. Okay, so question: What is it? This is our second episode, right? Episode two. Yes, episode two, Calvinism. Okay, it's episode two, Calvinism. So this has 
nothing to do with Calvinism. Are you ready? Okay. This, is, this is question for episode two. What is the greatest band of all time? Band? Okay. And you can't say striper. <laughs> that, that would not be me. Ashley's making fun of me. I, so I should probably, let me just, now I have to tell this story. Now you have to tell the story. Gonna be okay, like, tell oh my the goodness, story. the theology gals listen to Striper. For no. those of you who don't know, they were a Christian metal band who first became <laughs> in the 1980s. And my husband was into heavy metal back in high school in the 1980s. And so um, one of his metal friends, you know, have you heard of Striper? And my husband grew up in a Lutheran church which started out LCMS, which is conservative. But when he was young, his parents um, went the direction of the liberal Lutheran church. So he did not know Christ or hear even a clear gospel. Once he was old enough to even listen, um, he went to the Striper concert and they're reading the Bible and saying stuff. And he was so curious. He got home and he started reading through his children's Bible. Eventually getting another Bible and reading it all the way through. And he became a Christian somewhere in there. I'm not exactly sure, but anyways, so my striper <laughs> so praise God for striper. played into it. No, yes. Yeah. And, and my husband did go and see them because they were in Colorado, yeah. see them in concert recently. Well, he went, he actually flew to Chicago back a while ago and got together with all of his friends who went to the concert years ago. <laughs> And went yeah. to a concert. Um, but yeah, and I will probably be zero help on bands because I'm not sure even so I listen. If it's not the greatest band of all time, because I have very strong opinions about this, but okay. What what is your favorite band ever? Okay. Yeah. How about that? See, for me, it's like it's like some for me when I think of my favorite music, because I have such particular tastes of music, um, I think of I think of a choir that I love or a composer oh, that wow. I love. You're so much but more refined than me. I'm going to think, I'm going to think though. Um, you want band. me to give my answer? Oh, no, you, no, I think you need to keep everybody on the edge of their seats. Okay. Maybe, maybe some people can even guess what they think that you're going to say. Okay. So you can give your favorite. We'll put mm -hmm. a post in the group. Okay? okay. On Tuesday night when this, when this, Airs. Put your okay. favorite, but guess what you think Ashley will say. Oh, and, or you could even, if you want, you can guess yeah. what I'm going to say, which I'm not exactly sure yet. Okay, so or we, you could give me some ideas. We are not going to answer this on this episode, and people are going to have to guess. Right. And... This is how we get them to tune in next time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that'll work. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, we're thank you so much for listening to us this long. We have a lot of really great episodes planned and even some speakers or guests that we're hoping to get on that I think people would be excited about. This is if they agree to come on. Although I haven't even told Ashley this, but let's just say I talked to the ministry somebody is affiliated with and they said, we want this person we are going to make it happen for this person to come on your show. And I was like, wow. So, Wait, and I don't even know who this is. Yeah, I will tell you when we sign off here. Oh, uh, we're just going to leave our listeners hanging. I love it. This is, you got to yeah. keep coming. You guys, back. yeah, got to come back for episode three to figure this right. out. Now, if you yeah. want, if, you know, if you want some more information on Calvinism, I put together a resource sheet that tells about what Calvinism is. I have some links in there for further reading and some book recommendations. Now, I, personally 
would say for Calvinism by Michael Horton. He wrote that, if you're somebody that's investigating it, he wrote that as kind of a set with Roger Olson wrote against Calvinism. And they even have a debate on YouTube. If you look up Michael Horton, Roger Olson debate. Mm -hmm. um, Michael Horton's book, Putting Amazing Back into Grace, is one of my very favorites to recommend if you're new to theology, if you're new to the doctrines of grace. It is such an excellent, excellent book. I think he wrote the first version when he was 13 to try to explain to his family what it is he believes now. Um, although it took a few years to get it actually published, but I love that. That's the book that I learned a lot of this in. Yeah. So I'm partial. Oh, keep going with your recommendations. Oh, I was going to ask if you have any recommendations, Ashley. Gosh, I feel like I never read a book on Calvinism. Okay. It was just so clearly taught at the church I was attending that it was just, I just kind of soaked it up like a sponge. Um, That's a blessing yeah, to be in a church blessing. like that. I mean, really. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, uh, please email us at theologygals at gmail.com. Tell us what we, we got wrong. We'd love to, <laughs> you know, if we if we make mistakes, we'd love to respond to them on, you know, the next episode. Right, or, or tell us what we did right. Tell, that would be nice, too. Right. And also, um, if you have topic ideas, you know, if you're saying, okay, we, I just, can you please talk about you know, some subject, you know, we have a lot, we, we have heard a lot of those already and have some great things planned. Um, next week, in fact, we'll be talking about catechism and confession. Yeah. You know why? Cause We're I know that is a bizarre new yeah. idea. I thought like mm -hmm. when I found out reform people used catechisms and confessions, I thought, I, I think it, this must be a cult and I don't know what I've signed up for, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> But there is a reason, and there's a good reason, and no, it's not just Catholic. Yeah. Um, but find us on social media. Join our group if you haven't, Theology Gals, Ladies Theology Discussion Encouragement. Like us, Theology Gals, on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter. Connect with us there. Mm -hmm. um, if you are in our group, I will put the, the, the sheet, the resource sheet in our group files. But if you aren't, email us, and we'll get it out to you. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next week on Theology Gals.